This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner, and I have a little bit of a confession to make. I'm actually not a huge fan of writing stuff on my phone. Now, this is an essential part of bots, right? We're talking about bots that usually live in messaging applications, and it's all about mobile, as some of my bot friends are quick to remind me when they make fun of me for seeing a notification on my phone and then running up to my office to reply from my desk. But I feel like I'm most productive with a full-size keyboard in front of me and a giant OSX window with all the options. So I'm naturally a fan of bots that live outside of the mobile messaging services, or that are at least accessible outside of the mobile messaging services in some way. As you know, I'm a fan of the Amazon Echo and of what uh, Google is doing in a similar space. And I'm a fan of the idea of email bots as well. I think they're an undersung aspect of the emergence of bots. As much as we all use email, none of us really love email. So anything that can pop up in our email and uh, help us deal with email a little bit less is terrific. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of one of the most popular email bots. But before we get to that, just a quick reminder, O'Reilly's Artificial Intelligence Conference is coming up at the end of June in New York, and the call for proposals is open now. We're going to have a lot of bot-related programming at the O'Reilly AI Conference, so if you have something to talk about with respect to AI or bots, or even better, AI and bots, be sure to apply to speak. The call for proposals closes on January 18th, so you have plenty of time to come up with something interesting to talk about. The conference itself happens June 26 to 29 in New York, so be sure to submit a proposal for the O'Reilly AI Conference. There's a link to it in the show notes, and uh, also if you just Google O'Reilly AI Conference, you'll find the page. Today I'm speaking with Dennis Mortensen. He's the founder and CEO of X.AI, which has an assistant bot that works through email to schedule meetings. Welcome, Dennis. Good to have you on. Thanks much for having me. So explain a bit about how x.ai works. As the domain name suggests, it is a principally AI-driven service. I think most people have had some experience, if not this week, then last week, for where they received an email in their inbox that rhymed with something like, hey, Dennis, do you got time to meet up early next week for a cup of coffee? And they suddenly also have a memory of that moment of, ah, oh, dang it, I now need to start that email ping pong trying to figure out exactly when next week, what date, what time, where, for how long. And the only way you could really overcome that pain was if you won some sort of corporate lottery and became SVP of Flim Flam at Time Inc. And you got your <laughs> own assistant where you could then reply to that email and say, yeah, I'll be happy to do so. I've seized it in Tom and he can help put something on my calendar. You click send and immediately archive, and it's not your problem anymore. And I think that particular pain of trying to negotiate a meeting really is one that every single knowledge worker have some more than others. If you're in sales, probably all the time. And if you're an engineer, probably a little bit less so. Mm -hmm. And our agent is one where we try to emulate, if not completely kind of replicate that kind of experience of having a, an assistant and we've now spent the last kind of three years, and that agent exists on email. So what I just described is one for where our agent called Amy and or Andrew is somebody which you would CC in, describe the job you want done, click send, and it's now the agent's job to then take over from there. Scenario from uh, before, what you would do is to say, yeah, I'd love to meet up. I've CC'd in Amy, and she can help put something on my calendar. And what happens at that moment is that she will remove you from the conversation, understand what I asked her to do, and then immediately reach out to one or more participants and then negotiate with them on very traditional human terms and understand what's concluded and then send out the invite. Then again, there's nothing which I told you here which you haven't heard before because you can buy that product already. And it's called the human assistant. It's just very expensive. We're trying to make it extremely cost-effective, perhaps even kind of fully democratize it so everybody can get access to it. So it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, application of a bot. And I'm, I'm, we often talk on this podcast about uh, sort of what is a bot, and, and a lot of people define it narrowly, 
as a, a bot is kind of a conversational agent inside an instant messaging platform. But Pete and I actually take kind of a broader view that something like this is a bot just in a different platform, which is email. Do you think of um, Amy or, or Andrew as a bot? I most certainly do, but I think I also accept the fact that we as an industry probably haven't fully agreed yet on the vocabulary. And that means that even people like you and I will perhaps even differ on, so what is the conversational UI and where does that start and end? Where does the bot begin? And is there a difference between a bot and some intelligent agent? And is AI a way to bring a bot to life or is that something on its own? But I do believe certainly in my interpretation as well that any job or task that you would otherwise have to do yourself that you can now outsource to this agent is a bot or agent in my perspective. And I try actually sometimes, and it might just be because I'm too much of a purist or something else <laughs> to make a difference between that of a bot and that of an agent. And the way I sometimes look at it is that there's plenty of bots which I really like, and there's plenty of bots for where all I wanted to do is to set my alarm for tomorrow morning at 6.20 a.m. or mm. tell me the time in Singapore or turn on the light in my walk-in closet. And then there's agents where I have a job for where there's multiple positive outcomes, but really what I want you to do is understand the objective of what I want done and then go do that. Mm. And I think we fall into that last definition for where you and me speaking today at 12.30 EST it's equally good to you and I speaking today at 2 p.m. Mm -hmm. At least to me, there's no difference. So that means you can succeed walking down multiple avenues where the time in Singapore is really what it is. And you're setting my alarm for tomorrow morning. You got to set it as I told you to. So that's certainly one way to look at it. So I think we are somewhat aligned in that Venn diagram of understanding. <laughs> right. I think it's a, you know, it's it's a promising way of thinking about it. Uh, I, I like to think of a bot as kind of anything that uses AI to converse in human terms. And a, a lot of us are looking at a future where uh, a lot of conversation happens on platforms like, uh, you know, Messenger and Slack and so on. Uh, but for the moment, the vast majority of kind of digital conversation, uh, at least in a professional setting, happens through email. And so it's really nice. I'm, I'm a user of x.ai and really enjoy the service uh, and use it quite a bit. It's really nice to have this bot that kind of sweeps into an email conversation and, and takes it off your hands. And I also think it's perhaps important for all of us who are trying to bring some of these agents to life or some of these bots to life to create some sort of positive disconnect between agent and channel. So I'm not necessarily in love with email or in love with Slack or text or WeChat or any other place for where you and I can converse. What I'm in love with is this whole idea of potentially removing the pain of setting up a meeting. So we've tried to, at least to the best of our ability at this moment in time, to create that positive disconnect between agent and channel. So Amy could conceptually exist in other channels. And certainly the most two obvious ways we can go expand is along two dimensions. One, add additional languages, some version of Chinese, Spanish, German, whatever makes sense from a commercial point of view, and then expand into other channels for where I'm sure both you and I have a set of intimate meetings, wife, kids, college mm -hmm. buddies that we do over text. We might even have other meetings that originate on some other messaging channel. The vast majority, though, of meetings still today December 2016, arrive in your inbox, which is why we started there. But we certainly want to end up elsewhere. And I want you to be able to, like any other good assistant, to carry over the conversation from one channel to the next. As in, you might ask Amy to go set up a meeting with me come early February when you're in Manhattan, and that's all good and fine. And then later, you ask Alexa, hey, how's that meeting with Dennis going? Mm -hmm. And it's not one for where you think about moving from one channel to the next. It's just that you had a question for where you want an answer for somebody which you've employed this agent. So that's certainly how I would like to view it and not one for where the agents get married to the channels. Right. If that ends up being the case, right, then we end up in this setting where these dominant players could apply yet another tax. I would much rather that the agents on their own end up dominating the market. I, it's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is kind of uh, 
you know, how to avoid the lock-in because a lot of people have become interested in bots in part because they're frustrated with the platform lock-in in the mobile world where you have just Apple and, and Google sort of making a lot of decisions and imposing a lot of restrictions. And now we're, we're reinventing in some ways a lot of those, uh, a lot of those restrictions in, in bots, especially if we start, start to sort of marry the bots to the platforms. My hope here, completely naive perhaps, is one for where that relationship which you and I have with software today is almost non-existent. So you and I don't have any particular relationship with Photoshop or with Excel. We do plenty of work in certain software applications. I do hope though that the future will be one for where we have real relationships with these agents. And those relationships are relationships that we carry over from one position to the next, from one channel to the next. And really what you remember is that I employed Amy to manage my calendar. And if technology advances where email dies and everything we do is on Slack in the future, which is probably unlikely, but if it happens, sure, I just bring along my agent. And that, again, I can see is heavily biased towards me surviving as an independent agent company. But I think that will be a lovely positive outcome for where we don't see that lock-in that you uh, allude to. A, a quick aside, by the way, both of us have mentioned your AI assistant by name, Amy. You also offer the ability to address the assistant as Andrew. I'm curious about uh, what percentage of your users address the assistant as Andrew rather than Amy. The distribution between Amy and Andrew, I think, is fun, but if you really want to know the selection process, it's not one for where you choose Amy over Andrew. It is typically one for where you just choose the opposite gender. So most mm. males choose Amy and most females choose Andrew. Then you can ask, so how many women do I have on the system? Because <laughs> all of them will mostly use Andrew. Interesting. So I'm curious about the social issues that you might have thought about as you sort of conceptualized uh, the service. There's a lot of of, of social hierarchy inherent in, you know, sending a contact to an assistant to schedule a meeting. How, how did you go about thinking about how people use personal assistants to schedule meetings? I think there's many settings for where the by far biggest challenge of the startup is one of trying to find product market fit. You go hunt for something for where what you've engineered is in demand from a certain segment and you let's onto that and hopefully end up with success. I think without being too cocky that we might have entered a place where there's a pre-existing product market fit. It's just that the product was too expensive. So our job was not one to reinvent the process. It was one for where we needed, again, as you suggest, to go out and fully understand what does that process look like? Because mm -hmm. what I don't want is for you to both fall in love with the conversational UI or the whole idea of an intelligent agent, and then you have to learn or relearn a process. It should be one where you said, if I could have one, as in afford it, I would take it, and I immediately understand both the value and how to use it. Right. So we spend a lot of time looking at exactly how people schedule meetings, and that means we have inherited all of the challenges that comes along with having a human in place. So many of the challenges that we have today are actually not AI or agent related. They're related to the job we're trying to solve. And that means, I'll give you a good example here, that there's still, for some people, some stigma attached to that of using an assistant. Forget about whether they're machine-driven or humans. It's just that they are 22-year-old professional trying to set up a meeting with somebody that might be above them on the social ladder. Right. And they feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's not really a technical challenge. That is a process challenge. And we've tried to really both figure out how do we educate and onboard people so that that stigma could potentially disappear over time. Very much like you and I are probably old enough, sadly, to remember how there was a stigma applied to picking out your mobile phone inside Whole Foods and calling your wife and say, do we need tomatoes? Right. You did that. You are an asshole 15 years ago. Today, I'm surprised if people don't walk around with their mobile phones as in, where's your shopping list? Are you just picking out things willy-nilly? So right. somehow that became normal. And I think if we do this well, at least for my particular vertical here, it will also end up being normal. That it will seem almost eccentric if you decide to kind of do this yourself at 11 p.m. 
ping pong back and forth. So that's, I think, a super interesting setting, but mostly around us having adopted a pre-existing process. Yeah, I think you've identified a really interesting sort of point of entry here because there are a lot of predecessors who have developed, you know, scheduling apps or scheduling plugins for email where you might, you know, include a an insert sort of that shows your available time or, or a link that takes people to a public version of your calendar and lets them schedule themselves. But that's not really part of people's kind of meeting scheduling workflow. And there's something unnatural about it. So here you have a, a bot that really operates on uh, the human terms, right? That the kind of uh, goes into the workflow that people are accustomed to. And I think there's one particular item that makes that true. And that is that there's many processes that can be shared. And then there's a set of processes for where putting them into a shared environment becomes very difficult. And the processes for where the pain comes in small increments are super hard to share. Meaning that me heading down to do my taxes once a year becomes a shared process between me and my accountant. And we'll spend X number of hours, mostly me crying, him typing, <laughs> and we'll get to the end of it. And that's fine. And we move up towards that event. This though, you emailing me saying, I'm in Manhattan, Dennis. That's a 45 second potential pain having arrived in my inbox for where I find it very hard to see how I can outsource 30 seconds of that pain to an app. Mm -hmm. I just take it on. I do know though, that over time, this will probably accumulate and I should probably figure out a way to manage this, but I don't. And that's plenty of those processes for where I will just take it on now. Hmm. And that I think it's very easy to imagine as you sit there at 10 p.m. at home, looking at your inbox on your mobile device while half watching some show on TV. You're not thinking when that email arrives, yeah, let me uh, click into my scheduling app. First of all, multitasking is kind of shitty on your <laughs> mobile device. So double click, flip, 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 find it. Now you're in the app. Do I need to memorize or does it memorize all the promises? Or do I know what you said? Or do I need to memorize that as a move from the email over to the app? Now I pick three times or it makes three time recommendations. They might align to what you said. If not, I need to adjust them because that data set obviously didn't carry over. And then, fuck, I need your email. Then I need to double click, most of us go back. Copy paste <laughs> is even worse, right. certainly on my iPhone. Then I need to copy your email, go back. And in this process, I think I figured out that, you know what, I could also just to click reply and said, yeah, I'm in the city in February. Shoot me an email when you are at JFK and we'll set something up. That's not the best way to handle it, but I'll just continue to do it within the same process. So I certainly think that provides us an advantage. And I think that's why many of the, as you suggested, apps and plugins and extensions and tongle me and doodle me haven't necessarily succeeded to the extent that the market had hoped for. Right. So you're, you're identifying kind of a switching cost between apps or between processes. And, and if the switching cost is high enough relative to the cost of just doing something yourself, you'll never really put it into your workflow. I couldn't agree more. And I think this is where not just us and our agents, Amy and Andrew, but anybody for where the task arrives, whether in your inbox or some other channel, where the switching costs is high, as you suggest, you would want to keep it there. And I think agents and just the conversation you are is just such a strong element that they are bound to win over apps. Not that the app setting isn't good. There's many times where all I want is the app. I don't want Google Maps to be written out in a set of paragraphs to me. I just want to mm -hmm. see a visual. Where the hell am I? And there's plenty of other apps for where that is a perfect setting. But I do also think that many of the apps are in disconnect to what I really want. And I can tell you about one of my favorite bots, by the way, the most rudimentary of bots uh, is the one that Citibank developed, I don't know, a couple of years ago before they probably even would have called it a bot, but I certainly defined it as such. They used to call me, hey, Dennis, I can see that there was a charge for $3 on your debit card from mm -hmm. Singapore. Are you in Singapore? And all I'm thinking as he's talking to me is, I think AT&T is charging me like $5 for this call. <laughs> right, and right. I lost already. I wish it was fraud and you didn't call me. And that would be that. But <laughs> they moved to this new setting for where they just text me 
Mm -hmm. And within that text, there's only two outcomes. Text one, if you made the purchase. Text two, if you did not. That is brilliant. I hated taking those calls. And now I can just text back one or two. That is just a great kind of move from a suboptimal channel to a perfect channel for that particular problem. So let's talk a little bit about the AI that's behind x.ai. Uh, you have software that, you know, reads and parses uh, the email exchange and writes the response. You also have some human trainers who are looking at the emails and helping to train the algorithm. So what's the sort of balance there? How many of the emails are completely AI read, AI written, instantaneously dispatched? I think it's important for anybody who jumps into the bot pool to decide whether they want to put in place a fully autonomous agent or not. And it's not that one is better or worse than the other. They're just two very different avenues. And once you walk down one, it becomes very hard to rewind and walk down the other avenue. And there's plenty of models where what you want is some sort of mixed mode for where a human is augmented through good software and they become much faster or much more accurate or even just able to do the job on a whole. And that's formidable. Those types of business models and that type of software just doesn't scale well. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that it couldn't be a great business. It just doesn't scale well. And then there's the idea of the fully autonomous agent for where you set out to take what was a human process and turn it into a machine process. And you figure out what do I need to do to make that happen? Now, how much sacrifice am I willing to apply to get there? And we've certainly set out from the very beginning to build this fully autonomous agent. And if not getting there, we'll die trying. So that's certainly our plan. And that's what we spent the last three years on, 90 guys in downtown Manhattan. And the way we certainly approached it to begin with was within that, at least to us, understanding that there would probably not be any unsupervised setting for where we could train some potential agents in the basement in the dark and come out 13 months later and say, ta-da, we've solved it. Mm -hmm. That seems, at least to us, unrealistic. What we thought we could do was to put in place some supervised learning setting for where we could create a corpus so robust that any one of the predictions that we might want to make, we can do at extreme accuracy, so much so that we can let the agent make the predictions themselves without any type of verification and having fully understood the quality of that outcome, create some natural language generation that can participate in that dialogue within whatever dialogue model that we've designed. So on the read end, if we leave that aside for a second, we have spent a lot of time trying to increase that accuracy. And on the right end, we have pretty much solved it. That means if mm. you see Amy and or Andrew write anything, such as confirming this meeting because we set it up a while ago, or reminding you to go back to a person because you didn't say whether you could do Wednesday one or two, mm -hmm. or asking for the location or changing the pin code for the conference call and so on and so forth, all of that we have pretty much solved. That means nobody is typing anything. That mm. doesn't mean that at some point, somebody actually did go in and craft that. It doesn't mean that we don't optimize on those dialogue models. As in, there's certainly, as I'm sure you can imagine, multiple paths that I would rather you take versus other paths that I can see are less likely to succeed. So I'm very much eager to drive you as a guest in a meeting down a certain path because mm -hmm. then I'm slightly more in control with the conversation and I'm much more likely to kind of make correct predictions. But the right part is solved. Now, then to the read part of it, we have two sets of challenges. One, a set of intents that we need to predict at high accuracy and a set of entities that we need to identify and extract and anchor and so on and so forth. And on the intent prediction side, most of those that we see often, new meeting intent, cancellation, reschedule, so on and so forth, that happens often, we have solved. Those that are a little bit more obscure we're still short on data, as in, if it happens once every 10,000 meetings, for every 100,000 meetings, I do about 10 data points, and it's just too sparse. And some of it is actually so sparse that 
some of the models we would like to put in place, we just can't even implement just yet. So we're still on the hunt for that data. And the way we collect that is that we have, as you said, a good 40 some odd AI trainers right now that does a ton of verification. And you should be, feel free to kind of share, I think I even sent you a small screenshot of kind of one part of the console. So what happens is that say it's temporal data and somehow you saying, let's meet up next Wednesday and somehow we weren't able to capture that correctly. Mm -hmm. The AI trainer will then say incorrect and the AI trainer will then correct that to the date which they believe it should be and then send it back into the system. And we have about 20 some odd stages where we do that type of uh, verification. Hmm. And we'll probably do 10, 15,000 data verifications a day which we continue to do to make the corpus even more robust. And the funny thing is obviously that trainers conceptually will disappear one day, but then they won't. Because as they're about to disappear, I will obviously get ambitious on new features. Say I also uh -huh. want Amy, when you say you want to meet up for sushi at Haro's when in Manhattan, I actually want her to be able to understand that and potentially book the table. Mm -hmm. But that's a new set of intents which I need to understand and a new set of data which I need to collect. And that data needs to be verified in this kind of supervised learning setting. So we'll keep them on board for any new features we want to develop in the future. So that's kind of what we said, if that uh, makes any sense. Yeah, that does. Let me see if I can summarize that. So you, yeah. have, you have two layers of what you might call AI. In one layer, you're reading an email exchange and parsing it and trying to, to uh, draw out structured data from it. Sort of the intent, I, I want a meeting. Uh, some date and time information, some uh, instinct as to whether someone is available during those dates or not available during those dates, something about location. It takes it and, and puts it into kind of a, a structured understanding of the exchange. And then you have another layer of AI that takes the structured data and writes responses by email from it. And you're saying that the second layer, the one that's writing the responses, is essentially 100% automated at this point. But in the first layer, much of it is automated, the, the reading, but parts of it, especially in parsing unusual circumstances, still involves a human trainer that's reading the email and ensuring that it's getting parsed into the structured format correctly, and if not, is providing some guidance. Correct. I think if I'm overly anal, I would probably just replace the word email with string. So we will mm. extract a string for where you said, let's meet up on Wednesday, two o'clock. And if that doesn't work, we can do four. And then you might have all sorts of other things in that email as well. But that string for where you talked about two and four and our ability to kind of connect four to the day might not have worked as well as we had hoped for. And that string will be exposed, not the email itself. And I think that's perhaps an important distinction here. So um, I've noticed as a user of the service, and, and a lot of people have noticed this as well, that there's some variability in how long it takes for uh, Amy to respond to a threat. Sometimes it's nearly instantaneous. Other times uh, it takes a few hours. In the cases where it's taking a few hours, is that because the algorithm hasn't reached a, a certain threshold of certainty and has put it into a human trainer's queue? That's exactly it. So we run with a median response time of nine minutes, meaning that some can go long, some will go super short because there was no verification needed. The accuracy which we had hoped for for this particular prediction was where it was supposed to be and it just moves forward on its own. So that nine minutes, when that goes above and beyond, that's because there was something where we didn't have the confidence to move it forward. So we simply queue it up for verification. And we are much more willing, at least at this moment in time, to queue it up and have it slightly delayed and make sure that what we inject into the data set is accurate. Because the worst that can happen right now, outside of disappointing you, is that we pollute that data set for where we spent three years in assembling it. And if I get a little bit too coy, and just start massively injecting potentially poor data into that, we are doing ourselves a disservice. So we are very protective. So a big part of the concern is is, is preventing uh, kind of 
uh, interference or as you said pollution in the in the training data set by accepting parses that you shouldn't exactly by the way you you said that uh, you've been working on the NLU under your service for 3 years now during the last 3 years we've seen an immense amount of progress in AI of all sorts deep learning uh, NLU how much has your fundamental approach changed in that three years as the field has progressed? I think there's, again, two parts to that. That very first challenge for any agent which you want to bring to life of trying to define the universe in which the agent exists is hard, like really hard. As in, what does that meeting scale universe look like? Because I can certainly not answer any question which you have, and I certainly don't have the ability to do any job you want me to do. I can very much understand anything around meeting scheduling, and any meeting you want me to set up, I will do as perfectly as I can. Mm-hmm. But that universe we spent years on. And as people say that, Dennis, you're bullshitting me now. I can go to the whiteboard and I can write up at least that first 20 intents that pretty much define your universe. Sure, but how do you get to the end of that? And first of all, is there an end to it? Because if there's no end to it, then you're trying to kind of create some sort of oracle and you need to be able to define that. And not only that, you need to make sure that you exhaust that space in full and you can see each end of it and that they are mutually exclusive. And that was just super hard. And once you've done that, you need to make sure that the data which you need to collect to be able to predict those intents and or to identify and extract those entities, those annotation guidelines, and that's probably been more one of the more costly affairs on this end, where you write a set of annotation guidelines, spend months and months, half a year, collecting location in one particular way, for only to figure out, as you suggest, that some new paper came out on some new way of being able to extract location, right. where we're now a little bit wiser. What do I do? Because I've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars in building this data set. Do I empty that bucket and start over? Do I re-annotate? So that universe and that set of annotation guidelines, I think is, uh, is probably the most important thing. And that is the one true guideline for where that stays true and has stayed true for most of this period, and we keep perfecting it. Many of the models that we've applied to do any of the things which we need to do, they've actually changed. I think we applied very traditional machine learning techniques three years ago. And I think a lot of the success we've seen of late in any type of neural net you might choose to apply to a certain problem have progressed so dramatically that as we jumped in, we've certainly seen that sometimes half year, year's work on some other methodology, we could very easily replicate in this new setting. And that is just wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that is us being able to extract even more value from the data set, which we've now painstakingly been able to put in place over these last years. But it's really, as you say, the training data, the annotations, the high level sort of way of understanding the problem. That's the core value. And that's the real thing that takes, you know, three years to develop. I think so. And I think I'm as much a geek as you are and anybody else on this podcast. And there's things that are just fun to work on. But I think if you're unable to define that or don't invest enough time into it, you are bound to fail. And if I go look at you know, any dramatic project, take a Google self-driving car, certainly there's pre-existing methodologies which they've applied and they must have progressed. They worked on that bloody car for now, what, almost seven years? Mm-hmm. But I think if you really ask them, that what are they at now? Two and a half million miles they collected from that 65 cars. That is the true value. They obviously don't have a model of the real world, but they'll have some model of some world where that car exists. And that understanding is something where they can keep building on top of it. So another interesting point that you made as you described the AI behind Amy is that you make the problem, you make the AI problem a little bit easier by having in mind a kind of well-defined path that the conversation ought to go down so that you're not dealing with a, kind of a, a conversation space that's unlimited. Is that, is that the right understanding? You're, you're kind of, you're using Amy's responses to sort of guide things in, in a hopefully more structured way so that the human responses are easier to parse? 
correct. And I think I would underline the word hopefully, because you can go about this in, again, two ways. One for where you create some sort of tree, or even worse, you replicate some sort of horizon setting for where you must go down this path, which I've told you, and if you don't, the whole thing is kind of explodes. That would be unfortunate. So we're very eager to be in this syntax-free setting for where you can freely tell me the location up front, in the middle, or come the end. And it's my job to just make sure to understand that I cannot set up the meeting without knowing the location. But I certainly try to. And again, this is probably less about traditional engineering and more about, and this sounds almost evil, which is not the point, but more about social engineering, where there are certain things that I can say that simply increase the probability of you taking an action that I want you to take. I'll give you a little small, tiny example. So when Amy sends out suggestions for when to meet up, whether that happens at the very beginning or upon reschedule or later, because it didn't really work out with what she originally suggested, she will bold the first suggestion. So mm. you and me meeting up next Thursday at 1 or Friday, 10 and or 11, that first one is bolded. As we move from having it not bolded to bolded, we dramatically increase the amount of people who picked up the first one. And knowing that the vast majority of people picked the first one, we can simply just increase, again, dramatically the accuracy of that prediction for what did you say? Because mm. people won't write back a perfect temporal expression for exactly when you want to meet. We'll just say, sure, we'll do one. Right. So I get one character. And that one actually exists in all the other ones as well, because hell, we might have written it out in military time, some other version. So that alone and those kind of dialogue models makes it certainly easier for us. But we try to make sure that it doesn't look designed or forced. So then I think we end up with an agent that is just not pleasant to work with. Right. On, on the other side, do you detect that users are adopting a kind of um, bot-friendly language when they write back, you know, that they're that they're being just a little bit more explicit, that they're adopting a kind of hybrid, you know, uh, human parsable language to make it easier for Amy to understand? Not really on the guest end. And there'll be plenty of guests where they might have heard of us, they might not have heard of us. They might have heard of us, but don't fully yet understand it because they're not in tech. They're just in a completely different setting. Might even have heard of the word AI, but don't yet fully kind of understand what does that even mean. So they'll just reply back in the most natural way they can. No, Thursday is no good, but I could come by early next week. And that's exactly how we want them to write back. Again, one thing I was quite afraid of happening was that we started out with some agent for where it would truly be natural language. But then we will kind of end up seeing the agent move into some corner because everybody becomes more and more precise. And all of a sudden, it is slightly syntax driven. Right. And that would have been just unfortunate, to say the least. What we do see, though, is that hosts, yourself included, becomes more and more comfortable with how they are handing out orders to their assistant. As in, they are slightly more uncertain, vague, and potentially ambiguous initially, but then they become more confident, just become more bossy, which is the best mm. boss to have, by the way. <laughs> Worst we can have are people where they're a little bit wishy-washy. We'd much rather just have a good boss who tells his employee exactly what he want done by when. So we see a slight change there, but I think that is just increasing confidence both in the agents and in their own ability to have an employee on, uh, on payroll. Interesting. This is something that, uh, that we talk about periodically on the podcast. I, I think if, um, you know, if the adoption of bots outpaces the uh, improvement in the sophistication of bots, then we'll wind up with uh, kind of a common like bot language that people use. And humans might adapt their language to, to bots and kind of develop a way of talking to them. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more, right? And you and I, sadly ended up with a language of our own, right? So go no further than Google. So you and I don't ask questions. We've learned how to assemble a plausible set of keywords to get a result which we want. But that's a language of its own, right? Right. And I think it would be very unfortunate if we end up with the same thing for bots. So I was talking with a friend of mine uh, 
the other day who has a British accent and said that he and a lot of other um, non-American uh, accented people have developed what they think of as like a, a bot accent when they're talking to voice recognition systems. Um, so he switches into this like imitation American accent when he's speaking to Siri or Google Now or, uh, or the Amazon Echo. That is funny. Kind of ha-ha funny, but also a little bit sad. As in, I think we failed a little bit. And what I'm hoping here is that there'll be enough earlier doctors for where that might happen. But when my mom becomes reliant on the echo, it will have completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. Again, that could be naive, but that's certainly my hope. For the AI nerds in the podcast audience, can you tell us just a little bit about some of the specific deep learning techniques that you're using? So here's the thing. I believe that this is a potential winner-takes-all market. As in, you and me setting up a meeting is obviously much easier for you and I because we have the same assistant mm-hmm. so that neither you nor me will speak to Amy. It will just happen. And that will dramatically decrease complexity on our end. We'll have the initial kind of NLP challenge and trying to understand what was I just asked to do. But the whole negotiation will be some sort of internal preference negotiation that we can do in our own language. And we don't send emails back and forth between ourselves. And that also suggests that outcomes for this particular pain point, a single agent market. And it's probably a race towards who gets there first. And being second just doesn't matter. Hmm. I could be wrong. I pitched my investors on this particular, to me at least, fact. So we are keeping our cards perhaps a little bit close to the vest, at least for now. And you won't see us really publish any papers, even though I think we've done some fantastic research over the last three years with a reasonably large team, right? So data engineering and data science, where we have one data scientist for every engineer is about 40 people. And you can do a lot over three years, but we're trying to just, at least for now, keep it a little close. I see. And I know that's not what you want to hear, but then again, SoftBank won their money back. So I better protect that a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So um, do you plan to stay with... uh sort of a a product that centers on scheduling and handling calendars with the kinds of extensions that you described. Maybe maybe Amy is able to book a restaurant reservation or something. Or do you see this as part of a larger move toward, you know, an assistant that can that can really do anything that can maybe, you know, find documents or uh, or locate contact information or, or things like that? So I think both you and I have probably had some sort of fantasy from even when we were back in college where one day in the future, some oracle will arrive and we can ask it any question and it'll have an answer. And any job we want done, we can ask it to do that job. I'm not so sure I believe that fantasy is about to come true anytime soon. And I'd much rather be hyper-focused on this one particular pain point and if good, end up being world-class at that instead of ending up being kind of half-assed at seven things where I do a little bit of travel, I'll submit some of your receipts and I'll schedule your meetings. I'd really just like to nail this. But that doesn't mean that we don't have ambition in or around the meeting. So anything which is on your calendar today, I really want to be the guy who put it there. That means anything from date nights to me taking my daughter to dance lessons, to this call, to hiring a new employee, to anything which ends up on that calendar, I want to put it there. And once I put it there, I want it to be so robust that even if you sit on your calendar tab, you don't want to insert anything yourself because my title is kind of shitty. My location is always off, not even mappable. My notes are Mm -hmm. non-existent. And all the other things where she also writes a little profile of who I'm meeting with and so on and so forth. I want really to walk down that avenue. And I think if we can own that vertical, we're in good shape. Very much like, I think, Dropbox, they really just save my file in the cloud and do that well and should continue to do that well, hone that skill set. And I know they're trying to do five other things, but that's my relationship. And I'm hoping that my relationship with our customers will run for where we just do that particular thing well. But your question is honest and is three minutes into any VC chat we have. So tell me (laughs) what you're really going to do. 
this is it. We are doing exactly what we want to do. So, uh, so there. Um, thinking about the way that uh, that bots like this fit into sort of social interactions, are you able to see how many of your human users identify Amy as a bot in their message? That's a good question, and we wouldn't really know unless we ran some sort of study survey on it. I will give you one stat though, which I find interesting. So last time we did it, around 10%, I think it was short of 11% of all the meetings we do, at least one email will only have a gratitude intent. As in, there was Hmm. nothing you wanted me to do in that email other than you applying some sort of gratitude. Thank you very much for setting this up. I appreciate you doing this so fast and so on and so forth. That is certainly some indication of people taking time out of their day to write a machine, which they might not know is a machine, might know is a machine, but still write it with a virtual pat on the back. That is a non-insignificant amount, one out of 10 emails where, thank you. And um, so much so that we need is kind of create a model for where we can extract that as gratitude only, especially, and I'm sure you can feel my pain here, because they'll apply to all data in that. So have a good weekend, Amy. So now I need to know, are you trying to reschedule this for the weekend or what is going on in this particular email? And that has been interesting. So that we do see. Interesting. I, I mean, I've, uh, I've thanked Amy in the past, uh, and, and I'm deeply aware that, uh, that she's a bot, but it feels natural. And it, it, um, I'm also aware that, that a lot of bots build profiles of their users, and there's some instinct deep in my uh, psyche that says that if I'm polite to a bot over the long term, then it might be more helpful to me, even though that's, uh, that would be crazy to, to include as a, as a kind of mechanism in a bot. So I'll tell you one thing, and, and people might not like it, but we're mulling it over nevertheless. So the world will have, at least for my, again, particular vertical here, tardy people who will agree to a meeting at 12.30, but not turn up Hmm. at all, or very late. And when late, with no reminder or fact to the idea that they're running late, we actually keep a score of that. So if I want to set up a meeting with somebody outside of my scheduling hours, I might only want to do it with people where if I'm making a, a sacrifice, I'm putting this in air quotes, and come into the office at this morning, for example, at 7.15 a.m., I had a meeting. Mm-hmm. That is not when I turn up at the office every day. And as I do that, I should probably do that with somebody for where I find it likely that he will actually also arrive. And if that is not the case, that shouldn't be an option. Right. Or if your best hour is that 9, 10 to 11, that's usually where you're at your best. Don't give that to, again, people who might not show up. So we're trying to keep some sort of profile of you know, reliable people, people running late, people who are tardy. Because that is very visible in the system. Interesting. And, and that's the kind of intelligence that, uh, that a human would ordinarily sort of yep. put in. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, you're going to be uh, very popular with the, with the people who kind of hack their productivity. <laughs> <laughs> but what I like about it is that there's a reward for decent people, finally. Hmm. You and me turning up on time. Because I don't think in my first 44 years that I was really rewarded for turning up on time. But I think finally somebody's going to take note and score me for it. We'll see. Interesting. We'll see. It's like the Uber, uh, the Uber scoring system. If you're a yeah, better customer, you get a car faster. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. One more social question. Um, how many users uh, flirt with Amy? We have another intent, which is not necessarily flirt, but it's being annotated uh, with that. The whole, can you give me a ring? Can you meet me in the lobby? Can we go out on a date? You sound nice and all of that's good stuff. <laughs> and that happens often. On good days, I would like to give us credit for having engineered an agent so believable that they can get to that point. What I think, honestly, might also be at play here is some sort of sad state of affairs for our gender. Mm-hmm. Because if I really did the study, I don't think we see much of that on the female end. Right. I think you, as in female either hosts or guests and the way they interact with the agents, I think it might just be you and I that find it slightly easier upon third email saying, hey, Amy, we should go out and have drinks. And that happens all the time. And 
I don't know where you found your wife. I didn't find her in a meeting scheduling situation, but hey, <laughs> that might just be the new thing and I'm too old to know. So there. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's, I mean, Amy never initiates, uh, you know, any kind of flirting or romantic exchange. So the only thing there that would sort of cause a respondent to begin that kind of exchange is the fact that Amy appears to be a woman. The, agree. But also there's certain signals that are not in the text itself. So me writing you an email at 1 a.m., there's a story outside of the text itself where somebody sat down at 1 a.m. somewhere and wrote me an email. And you might not read that from the text, but you could choose to read between the lines what that means. And there's nothing between the lines. There's just a timestamp where the machine received it and decided that the reminder will work best if I send it out now. So I think there could be other variables that are not necessarily visible that uh, come into play. Oh, that's fascinating. Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the program. This has been a fascinating conversation. So if the listeners want to find you, uh, and if they're curious about sort of what's coming up with x.ai, where should they look? Everybody should immediately go to the website x.ai, sign up for the free trial, and work with Amy. And here's a funny stat. For you to truly fall in love with your assistant, whether Amy or Andrew, you need to get past 13 meetings. That's certainly what we've seen. Hmm. Kind of like uh, how you needed to get to seven friends on Facebook. Back in the day, they're way past that now, but we need to get to 13 meetings. And upcoming, early next year, you'll see us launch the business edition for where people can move Amy and Andrew to their own domain, add their own users, and just kind of manage it in a kind of traditional kind of SaaS setting like Slack and, and similar. And here's a funny anecdote. Just That was me just advertising a little bit. When I say they should immediately go to our website, Here's how I have listened to all the other episodes of this podcast. And the part which hurts a little bit, which is that I only do podcasts when I run. And I run for as long as the podcast is at, <laughs> sometimes 12 minutes. These hurts. This is like a 8K run for every one of these. And I'm sad. <laughs> I think we've been running now for about an hour. So yeah. whoever runs that system as well, you can uh, tone it down, jump off the uh, conveyor belt, and uh, this is the end. I'm, I'm glad to think that this uh, that this podcast might be healthy for our listeners. <laughs> That's what I've turned it into. Well, Dennis Mortensen, CEO and founder of X.ai, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure. Cool. This is super fun. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to the O'Reilly Bots podcast as much as Pete and I enjoy making it, please consider leaving us a review. Visit iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to the Bots podcast, and let us know what you think of it. Also, reach out on Twitter. Pete and I are available there, and we'd love to know what you're thinking about bots. And finally, remember to send in a proposal for the O'Reilly AI Conference. That's our next conference with a lot of bot-related programming. Use the link in the show notes for this episode, or just Google O'Reilly AI Conference. The call for proposals ends January 18th. We'd love to see you there. For the O'Reilly Bots Podcast, I'm John Bruner.